0: it was colin chapman the founder of lotus uh, lotus cars obviously formula one mm-hmm. etc who famously said that rules are for the obedience of fools and for the interpretation <laughs> of smart men <laughs> and, well, i think uh, it's quote to live by so um. brilliant
1: i've never heard that one that is so brilliant This is a bit of a different interview because, as you all know, that follow the podcast, it's usually I have directors and you know artists and different things, and we're trying something a little bit differently because I've read Dan's book. I, all of you probably know I've talked a lot about my recent obsession with cycling and how much that's kind of changed my approach to life. And then I came upon this awesome guy who's here on the podcast. His name's Dan Bigham and he's done some really incredible things. And his book is really inspiring to me. And so I reached out to him. He's, he's a very busy person and but he's very generous to have shared his time with us. So um, and I've gained a lot of things from kind of following what he's been doing and some things that's been helping my cycling and I don't know, it's a lot it's a lot of really cool things and I'm personally super nerded out and excited to have you here, Dan. So thank you so much for being here.
0: Well thank thank you for inviting me. It's it's really cool to hear that you you've got into cycling. I hadn't actually noticed from, from your Instagram I was expecting a few more bikes on there. But um yeah, hopefully, um, I can <laughs> it can be a bit of interest for people who are yeah usually talking to cinematographers and people who are a bit more more arty than than myself. But let's see.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that there's just there's a lot of crossover between what we're doing here. Um, I think that the way that you approach life and the way that you uh, have approached taking things that are complicated. And distilling them down to some some degree and understanding how to manifest your own destiny is really similar to a lot of what I like to do and how I like to approach my life. So I think whether it's cycling as the goal or being a cinematographer or an artist or whatever, I think that these things are very um, connected in a lot of ways. And I, and I think it's also really important to have different perspectives in life and having different kind of things. So, but yeah, I love bikes. I love riding. I've always ridden. I didn't get a license until I was like 19 years old and I didn't ever see the purpose and pursuit of it. Cause I'm, I was like, Oh, I'll just ride my bike everywhere, you know? So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I still love I mean, riding too.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a great transport method as well. Um, it's not so much something that I use it for, but, uh, it's, it's obviously, I guess the peak, the primary use of it is why it was invented and it's is what most people use it for. And I think sport and cycling as a sport has to recognize that, that there should be a lot more transfer to it as a transport method. And how do we save the world really when it comes down to it, like climate change and, and its impact on, on planet earth is pretty significant And anything we can do, especially as a sport to, to mitigate that and reduce that. And yeah, I think cycling is probably pretty critical in, in that process.
1: Yeah, I, I love when I go, because in America we don't, it's like, not, it's huge here and everything is spread out. So the riding to places isn't really, you know, economical. But when I go to like Amsterdam or um, cities that really, like even um, the UK when I was there last, just the the amount of cycling that was involved. And in I I heard that the city's trying to reclaim streets for just cycling only, which I thought was brilliant. I think I heard the closer into the, inside the city, it gets more expensive to drive a car into, which I thought was interesting as well. So but yeah, I mean, and as a means to transportation, which is wonderful, um, you know, obviously it's a bummer when you ride in the wet and you're just kind of dealing with it, which is similar to that's basically the temperature <laughs> and the weather out there. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, and also being healthy and what it does to your mind. I, I don't like to run personally cause it's bad on my knees and I don't have, I, I can run, but it does. I like the, the act of riding. There's this, you know, I know, you know, this, there's a, there's this thing that happens to your zone in your mind and kind of unwraps you you know yeah which is really cool
0: yeah there's a certain level of peacefulness to it and i find it really productive as well to to step away from from work from thinking from from forced thinking from sitting in front of your laptop mm. to heading out on the open road and just chewing things over i find it really helpful as as a way of just finding ways through the blocks i think everybody some mental blocks and i don't think i'm unique in that okay engineering is is probably somewhat different to just uh, some other um, problems that people have but um, it's just a nice way to, to kind of think through things to as you said distill them down break them down understand them understand the, the kind of constituent components to it I think engineering tries to teach as a, as a practice as something that people study tries to teach you to understand things on first principles to to break them down to literally their constituent components so can quite literally just be a few equations that underpin and, and govern whatever you're, you're studying and trying to, to wrap your head around. And then from there, I think once you understand what's happening, it's the path becomes a whole lot clearer to, to your end goal. And yeah, so I think as a as a way of getting that clarity can be can be really helpful. And I'm very lucky. I live I live in Andorra. I live quite literally in a ski resort. <laughs> so my view right here is is mountains and chairlifts and and lovely trees. So um, I have a great place to ride, and I don't have to worry so much about about the traffic. The only the only worry for me is going up a hill, and when you're out of gas, it can be um, a bit chewy. When there's 15 minutes at eight, nine, ten percent to to get back home.
1: Oh damn, <laughs> that's awesome! Yeah, you're down in Spain right now, right?
0: Yeah, so I live um, in this tiny little country called Andorra that sits between France and Spain. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, so um, I work for Ineos Grenadiers, the the men's world tour team, and we have I think it's about sixty percent of our riders live here now for a multitude mm-hmm. of different reasons. We're we altitude; it's a really good thing for for training. It's also very good from for a climber, most, most guys in the team are attempting to, to win races like the Tour de France, so being able to, to go up a hill is is fairly important to that. Um, yeah. see financially for these guys, they're running quite well, and the tax system here is definitely favorable towards them. Um, and just in general, it's a nice place to live, it's easy to get to all the races around Europe, so um, yeah, it attracts a lot of cyclists, and that's one of the reasons I'm here. And my partner, what, uh, my yeah, you know, my partner, my wife, Joss, she. She was very keen to come as well. She's a world tour cyclist and uh, likes racing up hills, yeah. whereas uh, I like going fast on the flat. So maybe it's not so unsuited to that.
1: I was going to ask you about that. I was going to. What I would love to do too is is for those that don't know who you are, or are familiar with your accomplishments and the, and the and the things that you've actually done for cycling. Could you give us a like a little bit of a breakdown as to kind of where you come from and how you became to be somewhat? You know, I know it's hard to do because you have. You've done so much with your life so far, but where where did this all start? Like, how, how did you fall into this? Um, you know, I know you do cover it in in, in, in your book as well, but um, just curious, kind of like the yeah. origin story in a sense.
0: Try to distill it down; it gets longer every year, obviously. And um, I think there's there's a few key moments to it, really. So I always enjoyed engineering as something as a kid, whether that's Lego or. Makano, just building things, that that was always a passion of mine and unsurprisingly, that le- led me through to engineering as just to study just at university. I, I studied motorsport engineering. My family all had links into motorsport or, or connections to automotive industry that kinda of led me to that path. I, I enjoyed watching Formula One and I thought that was that was the way I was gonna go. I was gonna get into Formula One, I'd work in the area department, preferably that was where my, my heart really lay. And to be honest, I got there, I got there on my placement year. I was in Mercedes-AMG Petronas, so Lewis Hamilton, Nico Rosberg at that time, working in the aero department. And I thoroughly enjoyed it, but at the same time realized that it wasn't truly where my heart lay in in the future. I could see that, um, so as an athlete, I was progressing, I'd, like you, discovered cycling and you, st- you get bitten by the bug and you start to think, well, I, I understand a lot about engineering and how maths and physics applies to... motorsport but also it applies to cycling and you start to realize that those links enable you to go faster as an athlete and at the same time i came across uh, a really interesting guy i guess in some ways a similar path to me he'd worked in in formula one a guy called simon smart and transitioned over to cycling and he designed and developed some of the top level equipment in the sport scott bikes envy wheels enduro skin suits and um, he was conveniently placed on the same site as mercedes formula one team and he kind of Mm-hmm. Twisted me into into applying all that aero engineering knowledge to, to cycling, and that really kickstarted my my career within the sport. I, I went back to university. I finished up my masters and tried to really direct my my studies more towards cycling. I left university. Uh, I worked a little bit in Olympic sport, in British Olympic sport for for British Athletics, British Equestrian, British Swimming. So basically using engineering to solve their problems and decided, you know what, let's make this big jump and, and see if I can be an athlete as well. I left that job, I set up my own company, Watch Sharp, and that's progressed alongside my cycling career where basically anything that I'm doing for myself, whether that's aerodynamic testing, whether that's research into equipment, design development, it gave me an out, uh, a, yeah, an outsource, a way to, to sell and to support myself, but also to give the sport i was doing for myself and it, yeah it was very lucrative it has continued to grow it's a bit of a family business now with my mum, my dad my brother my brother-in-law his wife <laughs> all working for the business so that's that's been pretty cool awesome. but it, it kind of let the, the racing itself led to to the, to the track to, to velodrome racing which i'm sure many people have come across it's, it's quite a big sport within the Olympics and basically you ride on a 250 meter indoor velodrome and the the blue ribbon event is the four kilometre team pursuit which is, is four guys and you race for 16 laps and you try and beat the other team or go as fast as you can and uh, it's it's very scientific, it's very controlled, it's, it can be easily objectified and I think that's what drew it to me. and. Effectively, I, I set my own track cycling team up that we, we targeted that, that event specifically. We went to, to the World Cups, we, we took on the national teams and we beat them, <laughs> quite simply, and we had a really successful <laughs> few seasons. and Yeah, it's kind of led one thing to another that has opened many doors. And now I've, I've worked for the Danish Federation into the Tokyo Olympics with Kanye Schram. We won the World Team Time Trial Championships and now I'm working for, for Ineos Grenadiers, probably the, the biggest men's cycling team in the world. Trying to make them go fast, so I think in five minutes that's that's, that's my story. a wonderful
1: job, outstanding. You feel like you've done this many times, so it feels great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love that your curiosity led you to things, and I love that you had this family that would support you to do you know your curiosities, and then you briefly like kind of passed over that you have a master's degree, which is some people's biggest accomplishment. And I love your hunger. It seems like when I read your book and read your interviews and seen what you do, it's like you have this deep, uh, optimistic hunger in life. And I think it's really, it's truly wonderful when you're putting together this kind of ragtag team as you, as I understood it, because, um, maybe we could explain what the UCI is to people that don't know what that is as well, because there's these different, you know, rule sets that kind of work for or against your your methodologies and approaches to things and cycling and people are very slow to adopt and uh, allow change to happen in the world of cycling as well which is really interesting I noticed as well coming from the outside looking in to be to be completely clear on my side I just rode bikes and I loved it and I used to ride like BMX and like all the trick kind of stuff and that was fun and then I got into flatland and then mountain biking and I tore my my meniscus and so I was like oh, I'll get back into riding again on the streets because it's less impact and then and then I was like I'll get a com- I'll just get a common common simple bike and then I'm like then I got another fixed gear bike and then I went a full on and I was like oh my wife's like what are you doing I'm like I don't know And now I have like a I'm building a a shiv right now um like the 2013 shiv that's the frame that yeah, I yeah. and and actually ironically I'm 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 actually having my zip wheels delivered today too I have the sub nine and then the 808 front and like all these things it's nonstop but um what was I gonna say The I think uh oh I think it's just I love that you had this you know this passion that keeps growing and growing and growing I loved one of the things I loved reading in the book was your your realization that you had accomplished what you wanted to as an athlete and then some and then you realized your fulfillment and watching the women on Canon tram team and I could feel your energy. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. We're going to, we should talk about that. Like we're going to bounce all over the place, but I love the idea that you went from this really high level ranking athlete and realized your pursuit is actually to be bigger, you know, to help others. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I I think the UCI in many respects, so the UCI is the world governing body, uh, Union Ciclista Internationale and, they have a long history of pushing back against technological innovation from Chris Boardman, Graham O'Brie, um, many of the, the ideas that they spawned, the super bikes, the carbon monocoques, etc. And it, it persists within the sport. They They control development at the rate that they're happy with. And that frustrates me. I find that really hard work. I want to move at my pace and not where the regulations allow you to and often not even where the regulations allow where their intent of the regulations allow so you can you can read rules differently and the intent is not in a rule book Um, I think it was Colin Chapman the founder of Lotus uh, Lotus Cars obviously Formula One etc who famously said that rules are for the obedience of fools and for the interpretation (laughs) of smart men <laughs> and, uh, I think uh, it's "quote to live by." Um, <laughs> brilliant!
1: I've never heard that one. That is so brilliant. <laughs> yeah, he's
0: uh he's a deep thinker in in the world of sport, and I think yeah. he challenged a is lot. He- I, I think he's a he's definitely a character and somebody to live by. Uh, and I think I've learned a huge amount from from him as a person and and what he's achieved, not in, in just motorsport as well. But obviously, what Lotus cars have achieved in in the world of cycling and continue to do. Um, yeah, I think. Having those barriers put up made me interested in trying to help others as well. It's something I'd done within my team. I was seen as a team pursuit. You collectively are the team and you need to perform and one person is not the team. And uh, it's a great event for that. And I sacrificed a lot as an athlete to ensure that we had not just the performance, but the support needed financially and logistics and everything that goes with that. But... When yeah, COVID started to come around and um, other opportunities were presented, then um, it was very exciting to kind of take that process that I'd applied to Team Pursuit and apply it elsewhere. And yeah, Canyon-Shram were, were the first team who who approached me and were like, this is awesome what you're doing, how can how can we get a piece of the action? And uh, yeah, to to be a part of other people's success is, is incredibly enjoyable and rewarding as well, especially when they really trust you and buy into your process and your way of doing things and Canyon were absolutely the the leaders in that at least in 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 my life and then since then many other teams the Danish Federation and what they've achieved on the track Um, but yeah with the Nios Grenadiers now I have 32 riders to look after and each with their own ambitions and goals and how do you balance all of them and the the team's collective ambitions so it's it's definitely a challenge but it's a lot a lot more rewarding when it's not just benefiting yourself. There's there's other people who are gonna go out there and achieve bigger and greater things than, than ever I could. Obviously I have my own ambition still as an athlete, but there's only so much that I can ever do. If you can help thirty-two people achieve each wow. of their goals as well, then it becomes so much bigger and yeah, a lot more rewarding.
1: Yeah, you're like ten X in your life almost, if you can live vicariously, but you can also be a supportive aspect in a positive way to people. And that that I didn't realize there's 32 athletes. That's a lot. That's a lot to manage (laughs) and to handle all those egos and all those kind of, because I think sometimes with certain athletes, I would imagine everybody's a bit of a tortured soul whenever they do something repetitively expecting different results, you know? And so, and I think that there's a realm of insanity and that ego kind of feeds that. So you have to kind of navigate that. I would imagine that's got to be very difficult.
0: Yeah. There's quite a few athletes that I've come across in my time with, that they struggle they they struggle with change and I think you have to accept that change is the only way that you're going to improve and move forward exactly as you said it's it's insane to expect different results if you keep doing the same thing and because they're so established within the sport the the dogma and that old school mindset just persists and it's surprising actually the, the disparity between the established older riders, the kind of heading towards the end of their careers in their early to mid 30s or even some towards their late 30s. If you compare them to the young kids coming through, the 18, 19, 20 year olds, the mindset is completely different. And it goes from having to, to push ideas towards athletes and to push for engagement to the complete other end where I can't keep up with the demands of what some of these younger kids are asking for. And it's great because I know that I don't have to fight for, for the engagement. I don't have to fight for them to... To take these ideas up and that's how we're going to get quicker because they accept it's, it's part of the process and if they keep doing that same old thing they're going to get the same old result and that guy's going to beat them because they're going to move forward quicker than them
1: I love that I love that um I mean if I I mean I don't know I guess it's a different perspective but if I was working with somebody that was repeti- repetitively shaking the ground and also uh, accelerating through things using different techniques and methodologies. I'd be like, you're my new best friend and let's work on this together because I want to actually increase your sharp. I want to sharpen your blade as well, you know, and, and that's how you really can, uh, you can kind of figure that out. But yeah, I, I didn't realize there was 32, 32, athletes. That's a lot to manage and a lot to kind of navigate, which is really quite beautiful as well. Um, when you're going up, <clears throat> Your parents or was somebody in your family interested or um, help you motivate you into the direction that you're at right now? Like is there something growing up you're like, oh, you know, my uncle this and that or I got introduced to this thing or or were they just full support of what you were doing?
0: I definitely had supportive parents in in quite, I guess, a different way to most top level athletes. I think a lot of top level athletes have support in the sense of they'll take them to every single race under the sun, buy them all the equipment, etc., which is not what I ever had. I never had pushy parents. They weren't saying, this is your sport and this is the way to go. But they were completely supportive of me trying every sport under the sun. And I did. I squashed tennis, rugby, football, swimming. I literally played a bit of everything, but never specifically settled. And they were very keen for me to continue my studies. And they could see, really, that's where a lot of my enjoyment came from. I enjoyed the social aspects of sport, but I hadn't quite found... What would drive me to the sort of top end within sport and what cycling has given me is the kind of tying together of my passion of engineering and, and sport and how I can apply that and I think a lot of people in cycling are in it for different reasons like some people love, love the outdoors, love the exploring side and they'll do trans Pyrenees races and, and crazy things like that or maybe some people like it for the social aspect to go to the cafe with their mates, to ride cool kit, to, to chat about some new helmet or some new sunglasses coming out whatever it might be in in that respect and about the style side whereas for me it's always been about trying to push myself to be better in every respect and that's not just physiologically but technologically execution equipment and how I can apply the nerdy side of my life to my sporting Mm -hmm. side of my life and my parents when I kind of I found Sight Thing and that was I was 20 21 really when it it properly came to me it was 2012 2013 yeah so (laughs) i uh they they fully backed me and um I think they've made comments since that uh maybe I didn't see them as much as I could have done because of everything I was committed to doing in in the world of sport, but they fully backed me in that and obviously joining my company to to support that and help that to grow because without them, it wouldn't be anywhere near what it was today because i I don't have the the resource when you spread yourself so thin and it can detract from from your main goals, and my main goals have always been obviously to achieve my performances that I want to do as as an athlete and to help those as well that I'm working with. And um, suddenly if you have a list, 20, 25 things long, then you spread far too thinly. You don't ever achieve the things that that you want to at, at the top of the list. So they've always been great supporters in clearing those things from the bottom, so they don't fall off the table. Those plates don't stop spinning, but it means they they get done and things keep moving forward. So, I do think as well. My my dad, he's always been passionate about motorsport. He he raced motorbikes, jet skis. He got us into to quad bike racing, kart racing. So I think that that helped to to really understand there was there was avenues to to apply what I was learning at school. Um, and to yeah give that competitive side at the same time because there's, there's kind of a few itches so a few yeah itches that they scratch within within cycling and I kind of think throughout my my life my parents have helped me to to learn about them and to understand them and then yeah at the right moment to support me completely to to go and achieve that.
1: I love that. I I, I love that you had that support because it makes you a better person and I also love like the thing that I got really excited about is that you do come from Formula One because then you're applying very high level engineering concepts at the brink because F1 represents the c- accumulation of science and engineering in pure manifest being used. It's not theory. It's actually usable theory that's proven basically, which I think is so cool. And to be able to take these concepts, because I love that stuff too. I'm not necessarily, of course, an engineer, but I love I was I'm curious about it all because I love like seeing wind, you know I have a very visual imagination, so I can see how things work and even mm-hmm. when it looked like you guys were developing the bike for yourself for your individual time your individual um hour pursuit, yeah. and then Filippo Ghana's one as well the like using the um, the things from the whales, I forget what you the call to those, thing. yeah, tubercles, yeah, on the the seat tube. And I thought that was so cool to disrupt and create um, pathage ways for the wind to kind of move. And I've just, I love all these things that you, you guys have done. And I love that it's all marginal gains. The moment I figured I heard that, I was like, that's a really cool term. Could you explain what marginal gains is to everybody that's listening? That's basically <laughs> yeah. your, your life, basically. Yeah. Well, yeah. Your writing life. We always
0: laughed and joked that we wouldn't call it marginal gains. We'd call it the, uh, what was our term? The accumulation of small yet significant improvements, which also rolls <laughs> off, the, off the tongue just as well as marginal <laughs> gates. So, the, the term was found by uh, Sir Dave Balesford, who's the founder of the team that I work for now for Inyosk, and it is so my boss's boss's boss. Is boss, is boss. <laughs> so, so high up nice. as I obviously can go, really. And mm-hmm. yeah, it is exactly what it says on the tin, really. It, it's the accumulation of those small yet significant improvements. If you constantly add up your half and one percenters in every different area, suddenly you're not half or one percent better. You 10 15-20% better and it's the primary reason why Team Sky went from well non-existent to winning a Grand Tour in under five years. It was simply put doing everything slightly better than it has been before and I guess unfortunately you know, for us it's become incredibly popular and well understood and well applied within not just our sport but all sports. And realistically, that has come from, from Formula One, that is the epitome of, of marginal gains. And we're quite lucky within Ineos Grenadiers, we, we sit under the Ineos Sport banner. So every other team that is connected with Ineos, we have access to and we, we do what was described in the book as idea sex to have people with different approaches, different life experiences, different understandings, look at your problem. So I could go mm-hmm. to... Whether it's Ineos Britannia, the America's Cup Sailing Team, to Mercedes, the F1 team, because they're part owned by by Ineos, to, to the All Blacks, to Nice Football Club, to Kipchoge's Running Academy. They're, they all sit wow. under the banner and we have this great thing, Ineos X, so we can kind of move around and to, to get different input because it's incredibly powerful to have a fresh set of eyes cast over something. You can mm. really see the flaws in things because... I mean, it was a really good piece of advice, actually, that I got given my very first job, that when you come in, write down everything that you think is done wrong, everything that you don't like, everything you think should be different, because in two, three, four months down the line, you'll work around it, and you'll forget that it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly what happens in every industry, every walk of life, that mm-hmm. because you're the new guy, you don't want to go, hold on, that's not right. And then you suddenly work around it, and yeah, it becomes embedded, and people just ignore it. And... To have that fresh set of eyes critically approaching whatever your problem is, and to say, hold on, you uh you aren't doing this as well as you could do for these reasons. Have you thought about trying this instead? Is it's such a powerful thing and it's something that I've really warranted throughout my entire career to try and do, to to push to find different people. It's something as as a track cycling team, we went out of our way to find people who weren't just like this, they were they had their own areas of interest and then they'd apply what they'd learn, but to our sport. And there's so much crossover from, from other industries that it's, it was, is a really powerful thing that we did. It it, is something that I still do to this day. And, um, yeah, it's, it's probably the biggest source of inspiration that we have.
1: I love that. I love that you guys have this inner tool that works for objectivity because you're right. The, the mind melds and, and bends to, to friction. And, um, if you're willing to bend to friction basically, and if you're not willing to have that objectivity, but in order to really get into the deep parts, the deeper well of where gains come from, you have to cross pollinate ideas, get perspectives on things. That's the last thing that some of us want to do is to be told we're wrong because sometimes it's hard, but when you're achieving or you're going for a goal, like in my, my work, it's a little different because art is subjective. So, beauty to you and me and everybody else is different. But when you're, when your goal is to get faster on a, on a bike, well then it can be quantifiable, which is really fun. And, and you can, you can still do it within this realm for so people that are listening to this and still hanging on to this conversation. I think like it definitely is something that you can apply to life. The marginal gain aspect, I would say like for an artist in my mind is like understanding how to really manage your time and your resources and your energy and your creative energy and that flow of energy, because like, if you don't, it becomes bad for you. And just in, like holistically, as we I've talked about this concept many times on the podcast, but the objectivity, this must've been, so when you were starting out, you were kind of you and your laptop, your spreadsheets, all of the stuff that you had from your schooling and education and the F1. And you're kind of applying that. I love seeing the videos of you just nerding out on spreadsheets. It just makes me so happy. Yeah, and like, it's cool to see that you're like, You're quantifying things. You're having your athletes run the track and going around, and you're like, "Oh, try this different thing. Try that. Try this position, because that seems to be the next kind of big gain." Obviously, is as I understand it, and you know this much better than I am. The bike equates to twenty percent of the aerodynamic drag, about so, and then the body is eighty percent. Is that about right?
0: Yeah. Obviously, the more aerodynamic you get as a rider, the more that balance shifts. But it's it's very true. The rider is is the biggest drag factor that you have. It can, you can have huge benefits from that. I think that's where cycling <coughs> is, um, is really nice as a sport. It's incredibly, object- or can be incredibly objective if you're willing to take that approach to it. And that's where there was a gaping wide open goal for, for us that the sport itself hadn't yet realized it could be objective, that it could use all the tools that were available, the technology that was being developed that was being used in motorsport 20, 30 years prior. And then it's super simple equations when it comes down to it. And anybody who's studied a little bit of maths or physics up to probably the age of 16 or 17 understands energy. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. It literally just transfers from one place to another, pretty much. So we're producing energy or power um, and we measure that through the cranks and we can measure how fast the bike's going and a few other things. And before you know it, you can, you can put a number on how aerodynamic you are, how efficient your drivetrain is, how efficient your tires are. And then once you can measure something, you can improve it. And that's that's pretty much all the process we took was, was. What happens if you change a helmet? What happens if you change the material of your socks? What happens if you change the width of a tyre? How does that impact on everything? And it's, it's super objective and you can move forward very, very quickly with simple science experiments. And that's all it was. It was something that you could do as a 16, 17, 18-year-old kid. But it was just that the sport had buried itself into this corner of subjectivity and old school dogma and we kind of came in shone a light did something <laughs> a bit different and maybe people had done it before but they hadn't executed they hadn't shown that it could be done and then it's once it's done it's, it's blindingly obvious that there's yeah. better ways to do it and I think that's what what scared the the establishment what scared all these different nations we were coming in on I mean the first year our budget was about 15,000 pounds and that was for <laughs> four international races three domestic races all of our equipment nutrition Everything, accommodation Hmm. the lot it was quite scary for a team that somehow we scraped by on that and could probably thank Hmm. a lot of overdrafts and credit cards for for bridging the (laughs) gaps but when you've got (laughs) nations who are spending five times that on a single race it's um, and they were getting shown up by us it it suddenly uh, put the pressure on them and I think the sport has since adopted a lot of our, our ideas whether that is in relation to aerodynamic testing or even just our strategies and how we approached team pursuing so to kind of explain the, the event a little bit more we have four guys and three or four people three to cross the line so the third rider counts
1: and the back of the third tire the back of the third yeah. rider's tire right is exactly the measurement yeah. yeah
0: yeah so you've got to get your third rider over the line as fast as possible but people are historically just approach the problem well everybody's equal everyone's going to do a lap turn get to the back of the line and we'll keep going round, and then we'll cross the line and that's that but you don't have to you don't have to carry that fourth rider all the way you could use a different rider who was stronger early on and you can reduce the number of changes you do so every time you change you literally use a bike length it's something that mm. i said in quite a few interviews and it, it, once the penny drops it's blindingly obvious so a bike length is one and a half meters and we could reduce the amount of changes we did by eight times so suddenly we're nearly 100 meters ahead
1: yeah <laughs> sorry not 100
0: yeah. meters, sorry 10 meters ahead and 10 meters yeah yeah, yeah, so yeah. suddenly you're the other team's having to ride a lot quicker for the mm-hmm. same amount of effort, uh, for the same speed, and at mm-hmm. the same time, it always out right. And uh, well, the became, choreography
1: yeah. of it must have been complicated, right, to get right into that pocket. So you're leading, and then you you open up that gap basically for that top that front rider. Because if you can maybe explain, because this is something that probably is a little bit escaped some of the listeners, is. How this dynamic works and how you discovered this, which I think is, again, when you're looking at an image and everybody says, hey, this is a flower and you go, no, that's a rose. And like, oh, you know, like, you know, you're looking at it through your own lens, your perspective of things, which I think is really important. So when you guys kind of discovered this methodology and getting these, again, marginal gains, but this is actually a big gain that you guys occurred upon. What was one of the things that was the hardest to kind of achieve? Because I know you kind of touch on it in your book a little bit.
0: Yeah, so there was, I guess, three aspects of team pursuit and the strategy of team pursuit that we that we changed. So we had a rider who was very anaerobic, very sprinty, very good at short duration efforts, not so good at the not that you can really call four minutes long, but a longer duration effort, such as four minutes. He was more suited to about a one to one and a half minute effort. So how do you best utilize a rider like that? And bear in mind, we had four riders. We we didn't have a nation to pick from. We, we were four mates. We'd start a team. And, and instead of um, yeah going out there to find different assets to suit your strategy, we had to develop a strategy to suit the assets, the hand that we had to play. So,
1: Good pressure other, cooker, actually, though. Good pressure yeah, cooker. Yeah,
0: big pressure yeah. cooker. But it made us think. And we were very lucky to have a guy called Medi Cordy come in to help us, who mm. has since... Head up the the Dutch Federation, who won I think every sprint event at the Tokyo Olympics. It was quite a scary thought how dominant they were, but he was he was very similar to us. Very open minded, progressive, not established within track cycling, and willing to question the status quo. And to the other extreme, we had a rider who wasn't capable of of getting round in a in a normal kind of strategy. Jacob, he he didn't at least early on in the the team didn't have the physiological ability no matter how much we we optimized in to do what we needed to do but they they used the cards that we had to play so the strategy we came up with was for me to start to do one lap so 20 seconds of effort and then for the team to effectively split so all four out, out from completely from flat out <laughs> yeah if, yep. and
1: this we get this i because I, I know this is common to you but for people so you're on a fixed gear bike that means your pedals and your legs and your crank and everything is attached to the bike when the wheel moves, your legs move, and when the and there's no brakes. It's as a track bike. It's designed. It's, it's fully like just – so when you get from st- from a basic stop and you got to push this big chain ring across, there's a tremendous amount of force that you have to push your body. So you do the first 20 seconds to get up yeah, to speed so as fast as possible. If
0: you think that we're, we're starting at zero literally in a, in a gate, we're held, and we have to get to about 65 kilometers an hour, and we have one gear. So yeah. you can imagine that gear is quite heavy. So if you take your, your standard road bike, put it in the hardest gear and then try and start, there's pretty much like the level of exertion that, that we're experiencing. So yeah. it's it's a really hard first lap. But it's, it's like a sixty well, really
1: fourteen. Hard. Sixty fourteen area, that yeah. Range. That kind
0: of region. Yeah, yeah. It's about between a, a four to one and five to one ratio, depending what you're 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 aiming for. And uh, yeah, so I do the first one and typically I would join the back of the line. That's the normal process. But there's nothing in the regulations that says you have to do that so what we decided was we want to preserve Jacob as long as we can we want him to have as much draft as possible to have an easy first half of the race so when he's in the back half he's fresher and he can perform what he needs to do so basically he created a gap in the line so I changed him first into third instead of fourth and a lot of people thought it was a mistake Chris Baldwin was on commentary on BBC being like hold on that looks intentional though what what's going on here and <laughs> And then the next thing happened. So instead of us going through the usual strategy, one lap turns, etc., we had Johnny do a five and a half lap turn, mm. and Chris Boardman was co-commentating with somebody else who I can't remember who it was. Uh, and but Chris is obviously very established within the sport. He's Olympic gold medalist in the yeah, individual, so our record holder, etc. He's he knows his stuff. And this other commentator going, "Oh, they've uh, they've lost a man early." And then Chris is like, I don't think they have. That, that guy's been on the front for like one and a half kilometers now. He's not come off at all. I think this is intentional. And then for the rest of the strategy as well, we were doing much longer turns. So instead of the usual one lap, we do three to four. So we spread the load out and do less changes because I'm going to ride on the front for four or five laps anyway. If I do it in one, one turn or four turns, it's the same amount mm-hmm. sort of energy. So the more turns you do, the more changes, the more loss. So we just reduced Mm -hmm. that. So literally we had to turn each and a change each and that was it Mm -hmm. and no loss. And it qualified us into, in our second World Cup, we got to the bronze medal final against the European champions and we were absolute complete underdogs. Mm -hmm. And it was just this um, penny dropping moment within the sport of the Medi method change, the long turn from from second man, it was five and a half, six laps, and then the long-term strategy as well. And um, yeah, people have since copied and and done their variants of it, but it's become very commonplace in the sport.
1: It's fantastic because yeah, like another thing to maybe add on to is that when you have somebody in the front, and this is of course much more your wheel set. so please correct me if I'm wrong, but when the person that's leading is the one that is dynamically dancing that knife blade of destroying their team behind them, like as you're dragging, basically you're, you're, you're the one that's cutting the air. So you're the one that's dealing with the most friction. You're the one that's pushing it. But then those behind you are supposed to be, you know, as, as you go further back, the less aerodynamic issue basically, so that they can ride with less intensity and you kind of swap them out basically as it goes. So this is really interesting that you thought of these things too. And I, I think what I love about it in the underdog story, we all love these things because if you were given all of the money, all of the resources, all the people, you would not have come up with this Potentiality. I think I think that having restrictions being pushed into a pressure cooker and finding results within yourself because the velodrome is your laboratory because it is a controlled experiment. And I think that's really quite beautiful. And it's cool that you're like, I would love to do that. There's just no velodrome around here. So I can't like so I have to ride on the road. Unfortunately, there's one in San Diego that's like concrete and it's outdoors. And it's like, that's not even like, I can't even like that's not, there's wind and stuff, you know, so, <laughs> and the <laughs> climate changes, you know, like these are things that, and in the, in the ground as well, it's like, there's too many, you might be able to get like some inconsistencies, but yeah, but anyways, I, I just love that. I think that's really cool. And it's cool that you guys found, who, you know, who would do what at what point and understood the anaerobic power and the the threshold of everything too. And kind of in the book, I, I remember you kind of having like a play card of, a top trumps or something like that of each player yeah. and knowing yeah. their strengths and weaknesses of each one of your teammates and stuff it's great yeah yeah it
0: was it was quite enjoyable as a process i think probably more so in hindsight at the time you're so stressed mm. because you're thinking how how do we how do we tackle this how do we yeah how do we do what we we've said we're going to do that we know we're capable of doing but how, you all live how together all too together? <laughs> yeah so on and off the track <laughs>
1: there is nowhere to hide which
0: i think i do think was a strength i think we built a really strong bond and we are all still very very good friends years on good and a lot of experiences positive and negative we got broken into three times in the space wow. of the year which yeah. definitely challenges you as people this is in derby
1: right this is in- yeah we like the yeah.
0: yeah the outskirts in a rougher area shall we say and um <laughs> maybe it was a false economy to to do that because we each lost um, a few thousand pounds worth of bike equipment each time we had a break in but uh yeah
1: yeah. well track bikes and bikes in general are so expensive because there's not a lot of people that do it so therefore the the demand isn't super huge well i'd say uh in the spectrum of like you know running shoes or something you know like cycling is a thing and then it gets even tighter as it goes up the pyramid of intensity obviously (laughs) and less people so that like my wife couldn't believe it. She's like, how much does this cost? Like, how, like, how is that even possible? Like, um, yeah, like it's more than like a motorcycle and more than most cars, these things. It's like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's
0: quite scary because like as you said, it's such a small niche sport really when it comes down to it. Like the world yeah. of automotive, they're making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of cars. So all that R and D that goes into a car Is easily spread out over that that number, whereas a time trial bike, maybe some brands maybe only sell a few tens, maybe a few hundreds of them. So if you're having to do all the design work, go to the wind tunnel, invest in CFD, and you you spend 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 on your development, then that's got to be recouped somewhere. So um, yeah, bikes get very expensive very quickly. It's, um, yeah, it's quite scary. But when you understand the economics behind it, you can fully appreciate why. Um, But it's hard, I think, as someone who comes to the sport and goes well i could buy a really cool motorbike or a bike without the engine and they cost exactly the same what's going on here <laughs> <laughs> and it's yeah it's hard to wrap your head around the logistics the, the, the feasibility of why that's that's the case
1: i often ask myself like why the hell did i get into this because i'm like oh man i need an indoor trainer do i need a computer in this i'm like man what? it just never ends the gear list just gets crazy but once you kind of figure it out, and once you get invested, you're just like, "Well, shit, you know, I'm, I'm here. I might as well just dig in and kind of smother myself in this weird debt, and then hopefully I can pass this debt on to somebody else, you know, down the road." I just trained forty you can't say Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm turning forty in three days, and I figured, you know, this would be like a good because I trained mm. jujitsu for about seven years or so, and really intensely, and a lot of that mental toughness has helped me out with this as well. This individual, because the thing I love about it is. It's just you, your machine versus time. And I love that cleanliness. You know, it makes my brain so happy because when I, if I'm racing against a person, that's a whole nother thing because then you have that dynamic thing, you know, that's happening that song and dance as you know. Um, but when you did your individual hour record pursuit, how I thought the thing I loved about it is was I watched it and I thought it was so fantastic. And then I think it was like a week after Philippe came in like a week or two weeks after, obviously this seemed like it probably was by design, but I, I love that. This is another example. And I, when I watched it, I went, Oh, cause I was, when I started going down this rabbit hole, I was starting to look at writers and I was like, Oh, this Philippe O'Gana guy is savage. This is crazy though. Like the power this guy is. And he's also very tall and he kind of goes against what convention is, what we would think of as a time pursuit, which, you know, time pursuit guys, they're a little bit smaller up top and, they're smaller contained so that they don't have less drag. But anyways, he became instantly like a rider that I loved to watch because he was just the, the way that he rode and this bike was so interesting and all these things. And then knowing that he was doing that. And then I knew that I think as I understood it from being a fan of both you and him, that you had helped kind of usher him through this situation and he just smashed it out, which was really cool. And that had to be a really proud moment for you as well both your your hour record and then philippe's quite recently like quite after that yeah
0: yeah i have quite an obsession with our records i've, I've done a few over the <laughs> yeah, years just a few and, uh... <laughs> Just a few. So my wife, Josh, she was the women's world hour record holder. Of course. Uh, she lost it about a year ago Oh now. no. So that that was a, a fun one. <laughs> I know, I know. But um, maybe another day she'll have, have another go, but uh, not for the time being. But uh, yeah, I was involved with hers and then I joined Ineos uh, pretty much off the back of my own attempt. So I, I attempted the British record, which was held by Sir Bradley Wiggins, but he'd had his world hour record taken off him by a Belgian, a guy called Victor Campenaerts. So he'd ridden forty-four point zero eight nine kilometers to beat Bradley's 55, 54.526. He's really bad, that I remember this. <laughs> you no, know,
1: I love it. Yes, you should. Can we explain actually to people that might not understand it what the hour record is and how that works? So we, can, when we're putting numbers to it, people would understand. Sure. So
0: it's it's the most simplistic event in cycling, and it's much like you say everything's within your control, which is is obviously what you enjoy about about cycling. So you get on a velodrome and you ride as far as you can in one hour it's literally <laughs> it, it's it's so pure it's so simple and what's interesting about it within the sport of cycling is pretty much everybody has attempted it whether that's everybody within the sport francesco Moser. um Chris Boardman, Graeme or all these guys who've been top time trials in every different era have, have had a go at the the hour record, and they've all put their line in the sand, obviously sometimes under different regulations as the UCI moves the goalposts, as it were. Um, but it's it's quite a nice one to compare back and, and very simple as, as events go. I love the simplicity it's, it's of, of it, the purity
1: of it. It's just a pure torture fest for you, isn't it? <laughs>
0: yeah, you, you can't hide. Because let's be honest, you're literally sitting there, you're going... Hey, everybody in the sports like thing. I'm better than everybody who's gone before me. (laughs) and I'm going to show you and it's all within my control. And if I fail, it's all on me. I've got no excuses, (laughs) which is quite a scary thought. actually. I I didn't even think uh, about it like like, that.
1: Yeah, that's wild (laughs) that you're going to everybody and just saying I'm better. I didn't really think it. But it's true, though, because like if you can pull it off and do it, you literally are the best at that thing that you're doing. The pursuit. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because. I guess you can always argue uh, I had a bad day if if you went to the World Championships and things didn't work out for whatever reason, because it was on someone else's terms, the day, the course, whatever. But you pick the velodrome, you pick the day, Mm. you control the atmospherics, you pick your equipment, you pick your basing strategy. It's all within your control, which... Okay, it's scary, but at the same time, presents so much opportunity for optimization. If you know the right velodrome to go to, the right equipment to use, the perfect temperature. atmospheric conditions. Yeah, so like you can really, really dial it in and really optimize it. And that was such a rewarding process. So when I joined Ineos Grenadiers, it was something I was very clear about. I knew Filippo; he'd made Murmurs about having a go at the hour record and having done the British hour record, I wanted to have a go at the world's before <laughs> Filippo had a go. I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that. Be <laughs> I to His answer. output is insane because um, we
1: gauge everything by well, we in cycling you gauge everything by the calculation of watts, which is the energy that comes through your body through <laughs> the cranks and is calculated. That's how you understand it. Um, and your your watt output is quite incredible as well because. I mean, when I try to do some basic math, I was like, how's he doing that? That's crazy. But your body obviously um, gets used to this kind of position. Also, doing it in the position of a time trial cycling. So, for those that are listening, when you're riding a bike, you're just kind of riding it. Usually, your arms are somewhat stiff and straight. But a time trial cyclist, you're trying to get your body to be as conformed to the air as possible and breaking it through, basically. So, you're kind of hunched over the bike and your hip angle and all these things are taking a, a beating basically so you don't have that upright position for maximum leg power but it's a different way of approaching it too but yeah quite interesting
0: <laughs> yeah so in the world of cycling we we have what everyone calls cda coefficient of drag times frontal area it's a common engineering term it's it defines how aerodynamic you are as a rider again you can draw a parallel to how heavy you are if you were trying to race up say Vontu or alpe d'Huez, or one of the big climbs so if you're trying to go fast up there You need power, you need watts, and you need to be light, and it's the ratio of the two that defines how quick you are. So watts per kilo is something we always talk about within the sport, at least if you're trying to win, say, the Tour de France. Whereas in the world of track cycling, because you're on a flat surface, weight is basically irrelevant. It has a small bearing and rolling resistance, but to all intents and purposes, the ratio that matters is the watts that you can put in, so how powerful you are as a rider and your CDA, and it's the ratio of those two. So you can either put more power in, or you can reduce your losses, Mm. and that defines how fast you go as a rider. Now, Filippo is a lot more physiologically capable than I am of putting up big numbers. (laughs) Most people, see. The power he does, (laughs) well, he's he's one of the best in the world, let's be honest, one of the best in in the sport in history. So he has about 20 to 30% more power than me. But I'm a lot more aerodynamic than him. I'm slightly shorter, a little bit lighter, and have spent a lot more time optimising my position. But my agreement when I joined INEOS was, let, let me go through the process, let me do all the development, the optimization of the equipment, the wheels, the tyres, the crank set, the frame, et cetera. So then Filippo can stick to his usual calendar throughout the year, not have to worry about the hour record and sort of parachute in late in the day and knock it out the park. <laughs> so I got to have a go with the full support of the team and he gets to beat the world hour record I as well win win all What a smart
1: approach too cuz like again I think this is something that I really love that I've seen with you is you have this high level optimism and positive approach to this way that you're living your life which I think is really conducive to being a successful athlete. I mean we you talked about it in your book too and I agree that a positive mind, a positive minded athlete as well will achieve leaps and bounds above a negative minded athlete who's focused on the bad side of things. So You kind of working this out like, okay, hold on. I know this guy's got 20, 30% more power output than me. So let me get this. uh, Let me get this. Because, you know, as it goes down in history, you worked your butt off. You got there. You did it. You accomplished the goal. You got your record. And that's incredible. And that's a massive accomplishment, you know, which is crazy. You know, Um, there must have been such a celebration. Yeah. To do it individually because, you know, when you're doing your team pursuit, there are way more factors, which is three other people. But when you're individually, like you said, it's like you're naked and there it is. You know, you're exposed and saying I'm the best and you can prove it, which is cool.
0: And it was a scary thought to say that. I mean, if you rewind back early, just before COVID actually, a few weeks before COVID appeared on this earth. I did um, an hour record just off for fun, shall we say, <laughs> um, in Derby. We were planning to head up to altitude to have a go at the Team Pursuit world record. And I thought, ah, oh, maybe I'll, I'll do an hour up there as well. And so I did one in Derby. I rode fifty-two point six kilometers, and that's a long way off the world record at the time. It's two and a half kilometers, ten laps, mm. which is I mean, it's five percent in distance, but it's it's a lot more in power. It's one to one point zero five to the power of three, so suddenly there's a lot more power to be had. Or you've got to improve your error. And At the time, I was like, how how do you ride at fifty-five kilometers an hour for an hour? How is that even possible? And then you flip the numbers into your spreadsheet, and you go, okay. So that's how much I need to improve it by. And it's chipping away and chipping away. And at first it seemed impossible. A lot of these sure. things do. When you look at the big thing, when
1: you at the we thing, chip it away. Yeah. yeah. Chip,
0: it away. chip away, break down every every area, work on it, understand more about it. How can you make a paradigm change in how something works, whether that's the aerodynamics and skin suits are probably one of the, the primary things that we, we work on. And they've seen huge development in the past five or 10 years to the point where you can have... One suit that i would take my hour record suit if i'd picked the suit that i'd had maybe five years prior as i came into cycling then i would have gone somewhere in the region of two kilometers less one and a half to two kilometers less so pretty much a lot of the gains have come from my skin suit and then everything else is just chipping away in in different areas and that's what's really rewarding because you feel like you make progress and it, it's not always obvious to you at the time you, that it's all coming together in these ways you you kind of very zoomed in on a certain area, whether that's, yeah, tire rolling resistance and understanding quite how tires work and how you can optimize them. And same with drivetrain efficiency or aerodynamic flows around cylinders. So how do you optimize the fabric choices? And then you zoom all out, you put it all together. And you've made a big leap forward. Exactly that. Yeah exactly
1: that. I love that. I love that you found that and you discovered that through the process as well. And and you, you know, when you looked at it, you go, how do I cut out our, and so when we're saying these numbers too, by the, by the way, so if you're listening within an hour, an athlete has all that they have an hour to basically um, do the distance and the, the final distance is what it is basically. So, So if you're hearing these numbers, that's basically it, right? It's like how far you can go within an hour in the velodrome. So, and you get to pick all the locations and some at altitude and have the different, like I I noticed that's one thing I I heard was a big thing that was happening with like body cooling or adjusting your body to warmer temperatures because warmer temperatures is um, less dense air. So it's easier to go through supposedly or supposed to be basically because colder air is more dense and it's harder to cut through making it more resistance. And again, if you add the, all these things up, it might not seem that big of a difference, but a difference between a couple degrees could cost you, you know, a lap. <laughs> and then and then if you're yeah, at the I end do, of it, you're like, damn, I'm like a lap away. And yeah. Where where's your mind at? This is something that I really wanted to get into with your mind is where's your mind at when you're coming towards the you know, you're you're about halfway through this goal, this hour record as i understand it that's when your mind starts to go either i have it or i don't and you either have doubt or you fulfill it and you dump dump it in because uh, where where's your head at how do you prepare your mind for such a feat because it doesn't like people will go oh this is he's just riding around a bunch of times it's not but i mean i, I haven't ridden ridden at a certain pace and i'm like that is so intense what you're doing and it seems simple keeping the the line and and keeping straight and keeping focus but where's your mind at how do you overcome those deeper kind of adversities within yourself mentally
0: i'm quite lucky really that one of our best friends uh and he was one of the, the masterminds as it was behind all the hour record attempts is, is johnny whale his background is is psychology mm-hmm. he's he's been in the team pursuit team we've raced all around the world together and he's very helpful in putting together those kind of strategies that we you will use in race and breaking down to the, the things that are important, the things you can control, the things you should focus mm-hmm. on. Because if you can't control it, it's irrelevant worrying about it. So for example, I can't control how hot I am. So don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Whereas I can control the position that I ride in. So how, how tucked I am, how low I hold my head, how relaxed I am with my shoulders, the line that I ride, my breathing, I can really control that. I can keep that. If I can keep that under control, then I know I'm in a good place, but I can't control the outcome. I can't control how fast I go. I can just control all those input levers and make sure that I do them well. Mm. so we had an exact strategy for every single five minute block going through. So not just the speed that I need to ride at and getting the feedback relative to that, but also the things that I should focus on. So yeah, breathing line, head position, and just making sure that I'm on point on every single five minute check I'm where I need to be because. I guess the most comforting thing for me is going into that record knowing I can do it. Mm. So I'd done a full gas practice run, fully censored up back in June. This was all behind closed doors and kept quiet, but I broke the record in training.
1: Mm. great. And that
0: in itself gives you the confidence. Mm. I've done it once, I can do it again. But it's also Mm. then the numbers you put, we do all these different tests so we understand physiologically what you're capable of, aerodynamically what you're capable of. And we plug it into the the almighty (laughs) spreadsheet as we laugh and joke about. (laughs) But it it literally says it is possible And that's all you ever need to know, I think, is it's, that it's capable. Yeah. It's, it can be mm-hmm. done. It's not going to be easy, but it's within your grasp. And then if you control all those controllables, execute the race that you're capable of, then you should achieve mm-hmm. what the end goal is. I mean, don't get me wrong, it definitely hurts. And the final five or 10 minutes, it's how far can you go is the question. Mm-hmm. So really, what can you do? And it's making sure that you're in a positive mindset to really chase the record. It's something that I've discovered I'm, I'm really good at when I'm challenged in a positive way. So being in that challenged state of, how, what can I achieve and even in training sessions to progressively pace my intervals. So maybe the first one is a bit more controlled. The second one's a little bit harder. The third one is on pace. The fourth and the fifth, you go and find out what you're capable of. And I, I tried to apply that same process to my record. I paced it negatively. I went to halfway and I was behind mm. behind the, the current record, but I knew that in the back half, I could pick it up and that I could progressively add performance. And then you add a bit of performance, you go faster. You get the time back and you're like, okay, that's good. Keep doing it. And it's that positive reinforcement of do a bit, get faster, keep going, and knowing it's capable until you get right to the end. And then it's all the taps are open and let's, let's see what you think
1: And <laughs> You know, like uh, another thing for, that's awesome. Another thing that um, people aren't necessarily aware of is that on um, the, like, as I understand it too, I could be completely wrong, but on the road time trial, like cycling, um, they have a computer that's on board that's giving them their, basic like um watt outputs and speed and all these kind of things but in the and on the track bike you're not allowed to have any computers attached to the bike correct
0: so, correct so no feedback other than the coach. yes
1: and so the coach and this is something i think you guys also did with the ipad showing your split basically and saying like you're either above or behind and kind of getting you to look up every every you know every time you come around and see and get a good feedback touch point basically which i thought was really interesting as well yeah
0: yeah, so every lap we're getting feedback on on my split. And it, it's scary how precise you can modulate once you get into that effort. So I could pick a lap split and I could ride it within a tenth of a second. Mm-hmm. You can you, feel you it. get really monotonous. Yeah. Yeah, you can feel it and then you hear it. And then every five minutes you get an update on your schedule. So you may have ridden to split and then, they're like, okay, you are one second ahead or two seconds mm-hmm. ahead. And hopefully then that helps to push you in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's... It's quite nice to have that feedback and to forget about the power because i think cycling as a sport and i'm probably bad for it as well gets obsessed with power because it's such a useful metric yeah. but still when it comes to that race day knowing my power doesn't help me the only thing i can do is ride at the speed needed and the power is irrelevant whether it's 300 350 or 400 mm-hmm. it doesn't help me all that helps me is knowing i've got to break that record so i need to ride this fast <laughs> And therefore, you've got to do
1: what's, what you've got to do. <laughs> and manage. You, you talked about breathing, which is, I think, I, I, I find that cycling at this certain range, and I've not done what you've done, obviously, but I've ridden pretty hard at some capacity, and I find that breathing is one thing that I'm still learning to manage. When I did jujitsu, jitsu was all about breathing. The first year of jujitsu, you just get mopped by everybody, and you're just breathing through it. And you're just trying to hold on for dear life, and you get your ego's getting crushed. And, um, the one thing I learned is like breathing through the nose, which is really hard for me to do. Do you, did you exercise and develop like a good breathing technique for your breathe? Cause getting oxygen to your muscles, your legs, and making sure your heart is maintaining itself. That's, that's a whole, I mean, we all talk about, you know, the rims and the aerodynamic, blah, 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 the bike, but the body is the engine really. And, and the mind and how well, how far you're willing to go into those reserves and stuff. But Breathing is one of those things. How did you develop a, like your, your way of breathing to maximize your ability?
0: It's an interesting question. So it wasn't um, like a, a forced process in the sense of like, I will breathe in this way. So actively saying, okay, a deep breath in or hold or anything like that. It was more a case of realizing in a practice run that the moment it all starts to go pear-shaped, this was one way. I was like, I'm going to flat split and see what happens. If I blow up, I'll drag it home.
1: Which is going just flat out just to see control. at what level. Sorry, just like so explain it. To you <laughs> yeah. Listening. Uh, so
0: basically, just riders go and pick the pace of the hour record, probably to an unsustainable level, so slightly faster, mm. and just find out what happens when you reach that point, that break mm. point. When does it all go wrong and what goes wrong? So I did this in a practice run where I had everything, whether it was core body temperature sensors, skin temp sensors, biomechanical sensors, muscle MG, measuring heart rate, breathing rate, all that kind of stuff. And then you start to realize that, well, it was pretty crystal clear to me. I had this break point where it all went wrong, but my breathing went out of control. I was like, okay, I've hit maximum core temp. I was just over 40 degrees Celsius core temp and i didn't have control of my breathing so then it became a really important thing throughout all the training sessions to focus on nothing special just deep clean controlled mm. breath and it's something i've done a lot of since things like when breathing,
1: going to that yeah that, breath yeah
0: yeah yeah and I, I find it really nice to feel in control of your breath because it's probably one of the only things that you can control and um it's yeah, I think it's a positive thing for cyclists to to do that, not specifically to, like, strength train or breath train, but just to be in control of breathing. And there's a lot of research that shows its it's benefit, and not just from a physi- physiological perspective, but also, like, your central nervous system and to be able to activate parasympathetically and mm-hmm. the benefits from that, it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's quite scary actually how beneficial it it feels to be. Well, it's,
1: it's the gateway to your pump basically. So it's very important. That's something I've been trying to be more conscientious of when I'm riding is, um, I try not to be a, a, a mouth breather and I heard it's actually, um, really bad to be a big mouth breather. I've heard it's bad for just your body in general, which is really kind of an interesting thing. I don't know, but Anyways, the nose breathing breathing through the nose and like allowing that passageway through that's one thing I was watching videos, and I was like, what's up with these guys with their things in their nose i guess what what is that It's like some sort of like helping clean out the the passageway for the nose so that they, they can have maximum yeah
0: to to dilate that so you you've got clean. Clean airways, really, that you can maximally breathe through your nose. It's um, yeah, something that's really common in cycling, and you, you often see those little strips as well that really help to open your. Lift nose it up
1: and, so you can get as, as much in. That's cool that you do the Wim Hof thing too. Yeah, his his whole method is quite interesting. Yeah, I would pass out doing that. some of that stuff sometimes because you can really get in there, and it's like he's found a way to like do drugs with his breathing, which is interesting. <laughs> like hallucinate on breathing on breath, <laughs> which is fascinating.
0: I've noticed a re- a really strong correlation though between my ability to hold my breath and my form, so my, how how well I feel I'm going at a time. So if I if I'm going poorly then pretty much I can't hold my breath very well and it's a strong correlation. It sounds like there's there's a lot of physical things that are underpinning that that when you're in good form and how well your central nervous system's firing, the control you have over it enables you to control your breathing or lack of and also your tolerance of low SpO 2 your body doesn't like having low oxygen saturation but if you're going to go full gas in a on a bike then you are going to desaturate you are going to get to the point where your body's not going to enjoy that where it's pulling oxygen from everywhere else to supply the working muscle and you become tolerated tolerated tolerating that then it's yeah it's very similar it's um, a very similar effort
1: it seems like you've managed to really with your life and your pursuit and your and 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 building watch shop and all of these other things that you've done, you've managed to really maximize the machine aspect of it, the bike itself. And really, I I think I heard you say that, you know, cause like I've already done the thing with the chain with the wax and all these things. And like, that was a really interesting process. My wife's like, what the hell are you doing? I have like a crock pot and I'm dipping the, we should actually, let me explain what this is for so a chain has all these moving pieces. Actually you should explain it It's much better that you explain. It. I don't know why I'm, it's <laughs> even saying, but yeah, can you explain the waxing of chains and why people do it? Sure.
0: <laughs> so historically chains have had all manner of random lubricants and friction modifiers thrown in them and i think it was an american called jason smith who first figured this out that paraffin wax is a very good lubricant for the pressures and temperatures that you experience in in a cycling drivetrain so yeah a chain as people probably know if you've looked at a bike has a few links and pins and rollers (coughs) and there's a lot of moving parts and they all have they're quite small and have high pressures and paraffin is Really good as a wax, really good lubricant for it. So, typically, what cyclists do nowadays is they get a chain, maybe they've run it in for a little bit, they thoroughly clean it so they have like an ultrasonic bath or.
1: I have one of those um, too. Some teenage
0: alcohols. <laughs> yeah, that's <So, so> stupid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they look very, um, very dodgy. Singing, yeah. <laughs> what
1: is that thing? Yeah, that that that, that yeah. thing cleans. So people understand that ultrasonic cleaner. It uses. Um, what does it do? It's like it kind of blasts. Um, it goes into like the it's cavitation. That's right. Yeah.
0: So you, you vibrates the liquid, creates um, a bubble that contains in a vacuum and as that vacuum bubble collapses, there's a high pressure jet that then is created at that point in the liquid, which then helps to clean whatevers stuck on the, the surface of whatever you're trying I to need. You. So jewelers use it quite a bit for jewelry. Yeah.
1: It's yeah quite and glasses and stuff i need you to be with me everywhere when i explain things because you do so much a better such a better job so yeah <laughs> okay sorry so because i know you're jumping over things and if you're if you're listening you're like what is going on but okay that's an ultrasonic cleaner as well so paraffin wax ultrasonic cleaner sure. okay these are marginal gains so you clean your yeah. chain
0: <laughs> you whack it in your in your paraffin wax that either is in a heated ultrasonic bath or a crock pot or slow cooker whatever you want to call it you submerge your chain and basically, the hot wax is all molten, and it, it it penetrates into the chain, and then you hang it to dry. It There's sets. a tungsten in there as well, uh, isn't a there? A a, a, a material. material. Typically, yeah, there'll be a friction modifier or two. Tungsten disulfide uh, is pretty common. Uh, PTFE is obviously pretty common as well. And other companies are going down. Well, all manner of different friction modifiers mm-hmm. out there. You can <laughs> you can get pretty much anything put into a chain wax nowadays. <laughs> Yeah, and
1: and what does this do this 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 waxing of a chain? So for because the people that would be like, oh, why would you care? But yeah, what does this do? The- mm-hmm.
0: So it reduces the friction within there. So if you all those little points that are contacting on each other as you're producing power, there's a force applied there and they're moving. So there's a velocity. Force times velocity is power. If you reduce the coefficient of friction between all those moving surfaces, as a lubricant does, then you can reduce the loss in the drivetrain. So if you had a really poor lubricant you might be pedaling at, well, let's say you're putting out 100 watts, you might lose 5, even 10% of that if you had a terrible lubricant. So if you think 10% of the power you're using, gone. Yeah. Whereas if you really heavily optimised all your drivetrain with a wax chain, with ceramic bearings, making sure it's crystal clean and you pick the right materials, you get that loss down from that 5 to 10% to the 1, two, two and a half percent region. So suddenly a huge amount more power is going to the back wheel. And that means you go faster for the same amount of marginal
1: fuel. gains again. And so, um, the last thing I remember hearing you say is that with body position, frame manufacturing and all this stuff, especially the bike that you used. And then also Filippo Ghana used that, um, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank. It's got a big name, so I can't think of it. And it's a very, the Bolide kind of concept. Belide F. 3 d It's beautiful. I mean, it's... I'm sorry yeah, you know, if I said it it's wrong. <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's a fascinating. And I love companies like that who go down that rabbit hole and engineer this work of art, basically, and do it for the sake of rising the bar and setting the mark, which is really fascinating. But what I heard you say recently, the last thing I think I remember you saying is that the last kind of uncharted gain territory that you're kind of exploring is tires. And... Um, friction on the road and those different variations and variables because obviously a velodrome controlled situation is different from a cobblestone street for the tour de france and these other obligations that bikes have to put themselves and the athletes through is that something that you're still kind of diving into or do you feel like there's other potential spots i mean this is your secret sauce you've been wonderful at sharing a lot of these things but is there another like uncharted territory? Like, I really think I could go here with this, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a good question actually. I think mean, that there are a lot of tires I really enjoy. I, I think by trade, people think of me as an aerodynamicist, but, um, I studied engineering and aerodynamics was just one area of that. And, uh, I always love vehicle dynamics and the vehicle dynamics modules at university. So understanding springs, dampers, tire dynamics, et cetera. And, even in the world of, of Formula One, tyres aren't that well understood. They're quite complex and very hard to model when you're looking at grip and, and how it creates that. And In the world of cycling, it's much the same. What a tyre actually does is is pretty damn complex when you're thinking about it deals with obviously creating grip. That's its primary purpose, um, but also it's your only source of suspension, realistically. Mm-hmm. And how do you optimize that balance between grip, suspension, aerodynamics? Because obviously the tire influences the aerodynamics of your yeah. wheels. It's um, a rolling resistance as well. Obviously you don't want to you don't want a slow grippy tire. You want a fast grippy tire. So how do you optimize? How do you square that circle on all of those different variables? And really trying to just understand it. To be honest, we have a really good partner in Ineos Grenadiers to, with Continental, one of the biggest tire manufacturers yeah. in the world, and they're super open with. With what they do and how they do it, and uh, it's not something I profess to be um, incredibly knowledgeable on. I'm, I'm thirsty for for more knowledge every day on that, and it's one thing I spend a lot of time really trying to understand. Uh, but I think cycling in general, there are a lot of stones yet to be unturned. I, I think the main thing is uh, the UCI allowing us to to push the barrier of the sport even further. Mm. They they have their rule book. It's very arbitrary in how the lines are drawn and what you can and can't do. What would you love to see them do the top
1: two things you'd love to see a change in to allow for the technology to actually permeate and to get bigger results?
0: So I guess number one probably is the main thing I would like them to do. And I think I would be shot if I said this in a pro peloton is to increase the weight limit. So currently they they say a bike has to be at least 6.8 kilos, which is quite hard to reach anyway. I'd like them to say it can be 10 kilos because then suddenly in, because everyone's on the same level playing field easily we can hit 10 kilos so that means you can put on cameras you can put on all these different sensors you can create profiles and designs that are structurally safe and sound incredibly aerodynamic or have complete other functions that we've never even considered because you've got this big open box But as soon as you say weight needs to be 6.8, then suddenly weight becomes a driving factor in your Mm decision-making process and you don't get to do all those fun things. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be number one. Number two, (laughs)
1: Um, I guess number
0: two, the rule would be for them to write a rule book that is purely objective, points, lines, planes, intersections, and not full of grey, wishy-washy subjective interpretation because that is so frustrating as rule books go is it legal is it not if it's written in the rules and you can read the rules slightly differently that means you get an advantage i think that should be fair game but unfortunately that's not quite how they enforce them right now so they're the two changes i would go with
1: yeah i mean it's it's also good too because if you think about it it's unfortunate but at the same time it gives you a person that has this ingenuity and this uh, reverse engineering kind of concept to then take the rules and just like you were using the quote from the the guy that created lotus it's like being able to take the pressure and unravel it and see what you can get through it which i think is really interesting i think it's also another big uncharted territory with your 32 athletes i imagine and yourself included that's 33 and whoever else you're helping but is the body machine you know the machine of the body the mind and how much time that you do spend with your athletes in order to like really engage their mind to think positively and to get through these potentially because like we all suffer from different things. I think that I think I know you mentioned in your book, when your teammates suffered from anxiety before races or um, one of them had a pretty bad crash, where they broke their collarbone and was hard to get back onto that like positive open mind when getting on the bike and stuff and overcoming those things. How much is the mind and body, In your mind obviously it's it's huge but like mind over matter or the body can overcome have you encountered that with your athletes and yourself as well or it has to be in harmony in order to achieve the highest result
0: i i don't think you can ever think yourself into winning a race that you're physically or mechanically not capable of achieving i think the result has to be possible from um from a purely physical perspective Can you produce the numbers and do you have the drive required to ride that speed, distance, go up that hill as fast as you need to? But that's only half the problem, realistically. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you've done it. You've got to go and execute. And I think there was a good concept that was taught by a really good uh, engineering friend of mine of... Um, a window of performance and we think about that in in motorsport a huge amount how often do you get the the tires into their performance window their temperature etc their pressure and is the car working in its performance window, certain ride heights and etc but cycling is a lot different because it's harder to say is a is a rider physiologically in their performance window and and what metrics and measures do you put on that to make sure they're in that window um it's it's easy nowadays to, to measure Things I mean, like smart, I have a aura ring, I measure heart rate variability, resting heart rate, etc. But is that important? Does it matter? Is that a critical performance determinant? And how do we get you into that window? Is it a certain type of training? Is it discussion around your performance and how you're going to achieve that? Um, there's, there's so many different factors, and because we're this kind of squishy bag of meat that is a bit of a black box, squishy bag of you know, meat, I understand. love it. <laughs>
1: Don't call me a squishy bag of it's, meat. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I got bones in here, man. <laughs> yeah, there's so many variables. Yeah, if we only
0: had squishy bags of meat, we wouldn't get yeah. It just, but yeah, it's it's how do you, how do you optimize them? How do you get them all into that performance mm-hmm. window? How do you make sure the athlete knows they can achieve it? How are they going to achieve it? What the what steps they're going to take? Whether that's in training, in preparation, in travel, in warm up, the music they listen to. Uh, what they think about during their effort, what do they focus on? Um, All those kind of things put you into that performance window and it's trying to make that window as big as you can. So whether that's making you as efficient as possible from an error perspective that you can always achieve those results, even on a bad day or from a physiological perspective, having more headroom to, to go and achieve that or being more durable in pressured environments. Let's say you go to a team pursuit competition and it's the, the world championships, but you qualify poorly, but you know, you can win. How do you tolerate that? How do you turn that round? How do you, have a positive mindset when things aren't going so well. How do you address the things that you know are going to turn you around? Having all those tools in your tool set so when you get thrown those curveballs, you can respond to it in a good way. And it's not always easy. It's it's great to sit here and podcast just talk about. Yeah, if you have a bad time. Just suck it up. It's like, yeah. well, no, that's not really. That's the not solution. the mechanism either. Yeah, the solution yeah. is. There. Mm-hmm. You've got to know what to address and and how to think about those things and have those people around you to help raise the morale to to look at those issues to give you a bit of perspective to to help you be in the state that you need to be to perform and i think yeah that that performance window is is one that i always try and try and consider um, and try and use the people around me to support that so my coach is a great asset for that what do i need to eat drink how do i warm up what do i think about what do I do with my spare time in competition? All of that stuff puts me in the window I need to perform and stops me from doing the things that are detrimental to that because you might think, oh, I'll just I'll just look at my phone and it's 11.30 at night and you should be going to sleep and putting those barriers in place to really, really optimize that performance I think is is super great. Mm,
1: I love that. Yeah, sleep is, is massively important, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's my biggest problem. Yeah. My personal goal, since I'm just a novice and I like to ride, my goal I've set for myself is to do 10 miles in under 20 minutes and I've gotten to 23 minutes. So I have three minutes to cut off and, and this is before I have this new bike. So I'm like, yeah, maybe I could get there. So <laughs> do you have any advice for a novice like myself or somebody that might be listening that is because we all obviously not all of us can achieve these things or live in these bubbles that you guys have, which are awesome. But Yeah. <coughs>
0: Um, I mean, other than reading the book, I think that can be quite helpful in having a goal. Yeah, Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Start at the
1: end, here you go. Go out there and purchase it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
0: But I I do genuinely think, uh, something like that, the 20 20 minutes to 10 miles on a bike is is such, it's an achievable goal, but it's not easy. Mm -hmm. I think that's that nice sweet spot of it's definitely possible and it's understanding what it's going to take for you to do that. What power are you going to have to put out? What drag do you have to hit? What course do you have to ride? What conditions do you Mm -hmm. need? How are you going to pace that effort? All the things that you have to do on the bike, holding your position, picking the right gear at the right time, all that kind of stuff. It's all within your control, but it's breaking it down, understand it, put your plan in place, go through the plan, improve, measure the things that, that are going to help you to get faster, measure your power, measure your drag. And yeah, go, go out there and go and achieve it and just step on the
1: road. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, and a couple more questions and I'll let you go. Um, I know that your beginning of your career and your journey has, was kind of identified as an underdog and now you're working with the best potentially, you know, um, are the best and the best. How have you adjusted yourself to working with this massive library of talent and the task that's at hand to manage these things? How did you, how have you been able to take it from the underdog perspective to now a quote unquote high level professional?
0: Be lying if I said it wasn't challenging. I definitely have found it hard to move from a mindset of I know how to win. I know the levers I can pull. Whereas now we don't have one goal. We have not even the 32 goals, right? So I have two, three goals a year and the team may have different goals within that. The sponsors, the limitations they can sometimes present and the opportunities they can present as well. It's understanding the complete lay of the land and then trying to think, okay, how do I best navigate this to bring as much performance to the primary goals that we have. And it's, it's been a real challenge, I must admit, because it's, it's such a different ball game to, to what I'm used mm. to. And I think um, my boss, he, he described it really well, where basically you're flying a plane whilst also fixing the plane and trying to improve the plane <laughs> all at the same time. And it's it's quite a, a complex problem because every other week I have a race to go to. I've just come back from, from Paris-Nice. Um, I'm probably heading to, to Italy next week to another time mm. trial. So I'm I'm on race trying to action performance. Then sometimes I'm having to to fix issues, whether that's mechanical issues or your ex- problems that we've had in time trials or whatever it might be. Just having to fix the plane, but then also all the time I'm trying to do the interesting thing, which is to make the plane better. How do we how do we improve? How do we move things forward? What's on the horizon that I should be looking at? That realistically we should be implementing. And I think my background in motorsport has helped a huge amount with that because. Where we are in cycling is where most what was twenty, thirty years ago. So basically, all I have to do
1: is look back. Oh, what were they up to? That's a good idea.
0: That. <laughs> nice. um, okay, that's very sure. simplified. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah.
1: <laughs> that's good. That it's good to know that it's a challenge for you because it seems like you're a person that likes a good challenge. So it'll keep you busy, and that's good. You know, like managing through it. I love that analogy of the plane too, which is really fascinating. A concept as well, and your role in this kind of a machine what is your technical role that you like the title that you're given or that you tell people that when you're doing this
0: so my, i think people jump between performance engineer and race Mm. engineer which is i guess a bit of both um but it's it's trying to bridge the gap between riders and everything that goes on behind the scenes so i'm a bit of a, a conduit for for knowledge for implementing solutions to all the problems that they have so because I'm still a rider, I'm still racing. I still race against these guys. I mean, my teammate, on so I'm on the, the British Cycling Olympic program now wow. as well, which is a whole other yeah. side thing towards the Paris Olympics. <laughs> that My teammate for that is also the guy that I work for in, in the Oscar it is, an Ethan Hayter. Hmm. So I'm helping him to get faster through my job, but also his teammates. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I sit in that middle ground as an athlete and an engineer, so I can, I can talk engineering to... To partners to equipment manufacturers etc but also i can talk cyclists to the guys who want to know well how does this feel to me what does it actually mean to me if they can't talk in cda drag newtons watts joules they can they can get it in, in their they own can't language. speak
1: spreadsheet yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm trying you, can you talk a little bit about white shop and, and and i know you mentioned now it's like a family thing this is another endeavor of your quite packed and con- condensed life but what what's going on with that? What's that pursuit all about?
0: So as I said, it was originally an outlet for the things that I was doing myself, aero mm-hmm. testing, equipment design, etc. And it just continues to grow. It's arms and legs now, as I said, with it being a full family mm-hmm. endeavor. Um, I'm still involved, albeit more at arm's length. I, I don't take a day-to-day involvement in actually running it. I tend to guide a lot more in the direction we should go. What should we develop? Who should we work with? And what does that look like? And try and join the the dots up. There's a lot of people I come across within the industry at, at races and competitions who are interested in our products or in a new product or a new design. And I think I try and bridge that gap of oh, we can definitely help you with that. Here you go. And we've partnered with with World Tour teams, Pro Continental teams like you know X. My partner Josh, she rides for the women's team there. And We support them as as a team with aerodynamic components and and testing and general consultancy. And I think in general, I I, I want Watch Up just to be the leader in doing things well, doing things right for the right reasons and supporting British engineering, doing things logically, objectively, having the fastest, best components to enable people to achieve the performance that that they want to
1: do. I love that. And it's so cool that you and your wife are so synced up with these pursuits and goals because it is a a very intense life, I'm sure the traveling and the um the obsessive nature of it to uh, gain and acquire these things it would probably be really challenging to have a marriage that didn't support such odd behavior <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: we uh we definitely sit on the same plane in that respect we even manage our our logistics and our time skills all through um through a spreadsheet we have google That's sheets so where, where's joss going to be where are we together what's coming up etc it's um yeah, it's spreadsheets left, right? Big congrats
1: to her. She's amazingly accomplished too. And that's a huge, that's a huge feat too, to be able to do that as well. So that's really cool. So pass my regards. That's awesome. Um, last thought I was sure. going to say, okay. I thought it'd be interesting is for you to share potentially what you're doing next. Then something that you're really excited about or a goal that you haven't obtained that you really are, are searching for. And then, um, any advice you'd give your past self or somebody that Um, It doesn't have to be about cycling or it could be anything, but like something that you could have given yourself that could have really helped you overcome something, you know, uh, some sort of word of advice. So two questions and packed into one. Yeah.
0: So for me, there there is one guiding light goal that I have, uh, and that is to to win the Olympics, to win the team suit at the Olympics. I feel I have unfinished business there. I worked for the Danish Federation into Tokyo Olympics. We went in as favorites we Qualified fastest, we won the rounds, we got to the final, we led all the way until the last half a lap and we lost. Uh, and that really uh, like, hurt. <laughs> <laughs> <Shoot>. <laughs> yeah, I know that um, must have taken a couple weeks to it's, deal quite with. Nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it's it was probably the most stressful 48 hours of my life, I've got to mm. admit, in, in a lot of respects. Mm. Um, so yeah, that, that is unfinished business. And it, it's nice now that I'm an athlete competing for the national team, that things have changed now. The door's open to me, I'm within the programme and I'm on the, the conveyor belt, as it were, towards Paris Olympics. So for me, that is absolutely my primary goal and everything that's had before then is, is literally uh, a stepping stone towards that. So whether that's Nations Cups, whether that's the World Championships, it's um, yeah, all towards getting to the Olympics, in peak form with the most optimized setup that collectively as a team we can have and to go and win there and uh, that's i guess that's the big goal um in the middle term as well i've also i've got my first child popping out in about four months oh man that's why you
1: mentioned she can't do you doing that (laughs) okay great that's good congratulations yeah (laughs) wow that's gonna be a game changer that's quite exciting (laughs) how old are you I'm 13. Oh, yeah! Wow! Here it comes! Yeah, big change coming. That's, it's amazing. Yeah. Congratulations to definitely a curveball towards it, but I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited that's,
0: for sure. It should be. That's
1: good fantastic. Stuff. <laughs> wonderful. It was so nice to meet you, yeah. and, and thank you so much for your time and doing all that you do for the sport, and um, really just I don't know. It's 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 really wonderful to meet great people that are really pursuing their own dreams and goals, and I think. Hopefully those that are listening understand that there's a different way of pers- pursuing your goals and your dreams and they're all kind of universal. It's just the human story basically is overcoming adversity and um so yeah, I definitely appreciate you. Thanks for your awesome book and um yeah, everybody listening, please go purchase it and support Dan and what he's doing and yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes.
0: It is always enjoyable to to talk about things. It it gives a lot of perspective as well, just to reflect back and to think about things that have have gone before and and what's coming up, and to talk about it as well. And yeah, it definitely helps to process, think of new ideas, and to keep moving forward. So,
1: thank you. Very welcome. It's podcast therapy. (laughs) This is great. (laughs) 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 Thank you, Dan. You have a great day. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers.